I got a question for you. Then the question is, what percentage of your life is spent being genuinely joyful? What percentage of your life is spent being genuinely joyful? And then what would you like to do to increase, or what could you do, I should say, to increase the joy in your life? If you're like me, you might not have as much joy as you think you ought to or as you hoped you would by this time. Uh, the last week, preparing the sermon, uh, unwrapping Advent or Christmas peace this week, unwrapping Christmas or Advent joy. For me, peace and joy are not in full bloom in my life. And maybe you're a little bit like me, that there's a longing for more. Uh, and then I had this experience this last week. I think it was on Tuesday. I was looking at the passage that we're going to be looking at today. It's a long one, 34 verses. But I was looking at that and just reflecting, and I started to weep. Uh, some of my theology went from here to here. Uh, I mentioned that before. I got more theology here than in here. And so I love it when it, when it drifts down, when I when I give it some time and some room to drift from my head and into my heart. Uh, and it caused me to weep uh, in, in terms of thinking about the beauty of what happens at Advent. Uh, the beauty of, of would, God, would God call me to be part of his family? Sometimes that's hard for us to comprehend or to believe, let alone understand. And so... Uh, that was a breakthrough for me, and I'm excited about it. So please tune to, to Luke chapter 1. Uh, today we're going to look, as I mentioned, a larger portion of Scripture, 34 verses. We're not going to go through it like verse by verse. I want to pick out some things about joy in there, but I think it's good to read that as we endeavor to unwrap Advent joy. As you're finding your way there, let me, let me provide just a little context for you that I hope will help make the Scripture jump out a bit, little bit more to me. It's important to note that the events that Luke is writing about here, all the gospel writers, um, they're writing about on the heels of Israel having spent 400 years having not heard from God at all. 400 years of not having heard from God. No inspired prophet or priest or king who spoke to the people on behalf of God Nothing. And just for, for perspective's sake, that's 156 years longer than the United States has been here. 400 years, they heard nothing. And, and it's in that that we begin to read some of the Advent narrative. In our passage, we'll be looking at two songs. That's what theologians call them. We search for some, some Advent joy. We'll be, we'll be looking at a song of Mary and then a song of Zecharias. And so in, we're, before we read them, I'm just going to give you a little overview. Verses 46 through 55, that's where we'll start today. It's what scholars term the Magnificat. You've probably heard that word before. It's Mary's joyful song. 
just so you know, it's, it's not like watching um, The Music Man or Hairspray or Hamilton. It's not like people just break out into song. It's, it's, a, it's more of an expression. They certainly, they certainly might have sung it. I don't, I don't think so, though. Some other, some other descriptors of that would be a joy-filled uh, psalm or poem or a prophecy or a prayer of responsive adoration and worship. That's what we're looking at. And the Bible is full of songs, as they call them. There's, I, I did some research, 185 songs in the Bible. 150 of them are in the book of Psalms. There's the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. There's Moses in Exodus 15, Miriam. Hannah's prayer is very similar to what we'll see in Mary's prayer. You, you wonder, how could a young woman, you know, say something so profound as what we'll read today? It's because she was familiar with Hannah's song. Hannah was barren, and she said, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you, and God did, and she rejoiced, and, and that's Hannah's song. Samson, Joshua, Deborah, David, Asaph, Lamentations are songs. Isaiah, Judah, all sang songs. And so... That's what we have. The Magnificat is a Latin word that means magnify. And what we see in verse 46, Mary begins her song with, my soul magnifies the Lord. So that's why they call it the Magnificat. And then in verses 56 to 66, the joy-filled birth of John the Baptist. And in case you're unfamiliar, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were godly, they were an elderly couple, both born of priestly lineage. Uh, they had been barren for all of their lives, and it was a source of, of deep, deep sadness to them. And it, it reminded me about a little bit about Abraham and Sarah, who she didn't get pregnant until they were both elderly. It also reminded me, for those of you that were with us in our study of Ruth last September, it reminded me a little bit of Naomi, just the, the pain, the sadness, the disappointment. And I can't help but realize that there's people in this room, some of us that are sitting here today that are walking in deep sadness or deep disappointment or, or deep loneliness uh, during this Advent season. And so I think there's something here uh, for all of us as well. And so they, they get pregnant, and then Zechariah has been, he's been struck mute uh, in all, for all of Elizabeth's pregnancy because he doubted the angel Gabriel's promise to him as a, for a son. And there's some legit theologians who think that Zechariah was struck deaf and mute uh, because in verse 20, we won't go there specifically, but it says, you shall be silent and unable to speak. And so some theologians say, well, that means he, he must be deaf and mute at this time. But we don't know that for sure, but it'll, it'll come into play later on down in the, um, in the sermon today. And then there's verses 67 to 80, and we have Zechariah's song. It's called the Benedictus, which is derived from the Latin word blessing. And we'll see in verse 68, the first words out of Zechariah's mouth are when his tongue is loosed and possibly his hearing is restored, he says, blessed be the God of Israel. So that's why it's called the Benedictus. And, and then we may have... You may have thought of that, but it's from the same word that we get our word benediction from, or the idea of blessing. Sometimes churches, pastors give a blessing at the end of the service, or a benediction at the end. Uh, that's a prayer. 
And so with that in mind, let's turn to Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 46. And uh, I was going to bring up a stool to create kind of a homey atmosphere, but it's just me. I'm just going to read it. And so we'll start in um, verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. You can close your eyes and just listen. Uh, You can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV uh, translation of the Bible. Let's do this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's talk, she's talking about herself. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth. She stayed with Elizabeth, her relative, for three months, and then she returned to her home. Now the time for Elizabeth came to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but the mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. That's another indication that maybe he was uh, deaf as well. They had to make signs in order to communicate. They They didn't just talk to him. And then I lost my place. I should just stick to the book, right? Yeah, all right. 62, thank you. And they made signs to his father inquiring that he wanted, what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. And uh, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then we have Zechariah's song or prophecy. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy, promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father, Abraham, to, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Kind Father, thank you. We admit that we don't really get it. There's so much more that's there that we don't see, that we don't understand. But I ask that you would open the eyes of our heart today, that we would see what you want us to see. I ask that you would be the primary teacher amongst us. We dedicate this time to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I find it really interesting that we have a, a teenager. Mary's probably a teenager, almost certainly a teenager, and then we have a, an old man that the generations, this and that, to sing, to proclaim these two songs. After 400 years of silence, God's people begin to hear sounds of holy hope. And I hope that happens to you if that's what you need today or in this Christmas season, this Advent season, to hear the joy, the holy expectation of these songs. Uh, joy can be difficult uh, to pin down, to understand. And so I, I want to help us think about this. And I probably shared some of this before, and you've, uh, you've probably heard this. This is something that I harp on. And so it won't be the last time that you hear it either. But there's, there's a difference between joy and happiness. And it kind of bugs me when I hear parents say, I just want my kids to be happy. And I, I, I have to hold my tongue because what I'm saying is, no, you don't. You want them to be joyful. And what we're going to say today is that in order to be joyful in our lives, to have that joy, and we'll try to describe it and define it a little bit, but in order to have that, you need to go through some difficult times. You can't have that joy without having endured some difficulty and having that difficulty turn you to God. And so I make this distinction between happiness and joy because I think in our culture we tend to confuse them. So one way to distinguish um, joy from happiness, happiness depends on happenings. The word happiness comes from the same root word as happenstance, which is circumstantial. Happiness will come and go. It's based on our circumstances. Sometimes you'll be happy, sometimes you won't. But we want to distinguish that from uh, an Advent joy, a gospel joy, a biblical joy. Uh, so from that alone, we begin to understand that, that happiness is external and joy is internal. And so I want to give you the best definition of joy that I've come across. And if you have a better one, I'd love to have it. But after all these years, I think I'm in my 40th year of ministry this year, uh, this is the best that I've been able to come up with uh, so far. Joy is not happiness so much as gladness. And that even doesn't begin to describe it, does it? It's not, it's not happiness so much as gladness. It is the ecstasy, now we're getting closer, of eternity in a soul that has made peace with God and is ready to do his will. That's the joy 
that I'm talking about. That's the joy. That's the journey, the pathway that we're on to move towards joy. And let me just unpack that a little further. I found that, that joy often follows a pattern in almost all of our relationships and almost all of our significant life undertaking, undertakings. And this pattern can be identified in three phases. There's the romance phase, there's the disillusionment phase, and then there's true joy, the kind of joy that we just read about there. The romance phase, I think we're pretty familiar with this, is it's, it's the idealistic perceptions and expectations and plans. When you meet that person that, that, you, that you want to marry, uh, that's, that's the romance phase. When you get that, what you think might be your dream job, uh, when you have a child, there's a, there's a romance phase, uh, and, and, and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And then the disillusionment phase sets in, right? It's, it's, the, it's the new wife three months down the road, waking up early, looking over across the bed and going, what was I thinking? That's the disillusionment phase. Or when your baby is colicky, right? And just will not sleep. Uh, when that job doesn't turn out to be your dream job, and it's awful. And the disillusionment stage sets in. And here's what I want to say to you. Disillusionment is a good thing. Why? To have an illusion is to have a false idea, correct? You with me? An illusion, false idea. To be disillusioned is to have reality break into our life. So it's a good thing. And it's how we deal with reality, our current reality. It's how we deal with that that will either keep joy from us or move us towards joy. It's embracing the pathway to joy is embracing our current reality. That's what I'm trying to say here. When we will embrace our current reality, let it sit on us. We can't get past grief, for instance, until we feel it. We can't get past anger till we feel it, and then it begins to dissipate in that. Our current culture offers so many medicating alternatives, right? Uh, from binge-watching a variety of streaming services. I got a new computer, and I got a year's worth of Apple Plus, a whole bunch more TV shows now I can watch and medicate if I want to, just zone out. Uh, and that includes pornography. We can overplay video games, can't we? There's alcohol, drug abuse. Those are all medications that keep us from embracing and feeling and owning our current reality. There's even good things, healthy things, that can, that can keep us, medicate us from our delusion, disillusionment. I thought of one this morning. Do you know that we can use God to run from God? We can use God to run from God. We can be so involved in all these religious, spiritual activities, and it prevents us from embracing 
our current reality. We get so busy serving God that we don't deal with the heart stuff, the soul stuff, the woundedness, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the stress. So even good things can keep us from joy. We experience joy when we embrace our current reality and begin to proactively work through our disillusionment. And the disillusionment phase can be quite painful, can it? Sometimes we have to deal with things that we buried in our past, and it can bring up a lot of hurt and pain. There's a story about a rabbi, and he told his students, if, if they study the Torah, it will put Scripture on their hearts. And then one of his students asks, why on our hearts instead of in our hearts? And here's what the rabbi said. Only God can put scriptures inside. But reading sacred text, he said, can put it on our heart. And then when your heart breaks, the holy words will fall inside. Isn't that beautiful? Does not explain a lot in our lives. And we medicate and try and move away from actually dealing with the issues that are preventing joy from surfacing in our lives. And so as I read and studied these two songs that, that I read, that we read, I found my look, myself looking for, these, for some deeper insights into Mary and Zacharias and, 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 and how do we make deposits of joy in our lives, uh, into our hearts and into our soul. And I'd like to spend the rest of my time, I want to make two additional points here. The first one will take a bit, and the second one will be uh, quick. And so looking at Mary's joy... Uh, versus, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, I forget. You'll find it. But looking at Mary's joy, she begins with the words. You have uh, verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And as her song continues, I found two words in there that motivated me to consider uh, joy at a little deeper level. This, the undergirding of Mary's joy. The two words are humility and fear. Humility and fear. I pulled those out and felt like they, as I mentioned, were undergirding her joy in the moment. So let's take a look at that. First one is humility, verse 48. For he has had regard for the humble state of his servant. That's a difference between her and Zechariah. Zechariah was saying to Gabriel, uh, I'm old, uh, prove it. Uh, Mary was saying, why me? Why me? And that's two different ways that we can engage with God too, isn't it? So Mary's saying, why me? Why me? We're just coming off a study of the Beatitudes, which contained, they're contained in Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5 through 7. We looked at uh, chapter 5, the Beatitudes, we identified them at some point as the unlikely route to joy. I don't know if you remember that, but that's one of my common sayings when I'm going through the Beatitudes. And what we found in the Beatitudes is, is that when we are willing to own our spiritual poverty, that God would take us on a journey through mourning, through repentance, and into a place of well, meekness, what we described as becoming humble learners. Disciple means learner. We become humble learners. And then God 
puts in us a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for God. So that's that journey, that beatitude journey. And then he begins to fill us with mercy. Once we receive his mercy, we begin to give mercy. And that leads to a purifying of our heart, which empowers us to become makers of peace. As opposed to peacekeepers or keepers of peace, we are called to be makers of peace. And then, of course, we get persecuted. And that's normative. But here's what we need to think about in terms of persecution, in case you for you forget this, that who are the people that persecuted Jesus the most? Where will our greatest persecution come from? Religious people. There might be some in this room that are a little more religious than what I would call Christian, uh, that, that the goal is obedience and keeping the law. And, and those are the folks that end up being the greatest persecutors of the church. We saw it in Galatians as well. And so joy grows and deepens in our lives as we walk this road less traveled that begins with humility. And that includes owning our own issues. What is it that you're doing in me, God, at this time in my life? The second word is found in verse 50. God's mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. And I think this is an important word for us to, to just to think about and, and consider a healthy and holy fear of God will, will feed into our joy. Uh, what the Bible means by fear and what we tend to think fear means can be two very different ideas. I think I heard somewhere along the line that, that uh, Oprah left her Christian faith because she didn't understand the concept of the fear of God. And she thought it meant something that it doesn't mean. And so maybe some of you have struggled with that too. There's many passages that speak of a healthy and holy fear of God. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then Proverbs 8.13 begins to define fear for us and has the Lord saying, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and pride and arrogance. I hope Oprah gets to read that someday. The fear of the Lord is to beginning to, to hate evil, to hate pride, and hate arrogance. And of course, when the Bible's talking about that thing, it's, it's speaking to us. It's, it's saying, I want you to, to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and hate the evil, pride, and arrogance in your own life. Do that first. Start there. That's what it's trying to say in here. And these things throw a wrench into the idea that the fear of God is disturbing or bad or negative. And then the biblical word fear contains the idea of humility, of awe, of amazement. And I would say even worship. When we talk about fearing the Lord, it's, it's, it's surrendering, it's, it's acknowledging the, 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 the bigness, the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of God and surrendering to that. And a healthy and holy biblical fear of God requires us to live in this tension of knowing that God loves us and at the same time seeing and acknowledging our own kind of selfish condition, knowing that I'm a sinner that's just saved by grace. And so these two perspectives are to grow together in our lives 
as Christians. Theologians call this living in gospel tension. Gospel-centered theologians talk about this living in gospel tension. What does that mean? Here's how it works. You and I are sinful enough that Jesus had to come and die. Remember, it takes perfection to be in the presence of God. So if you're not perfect, you can't be in the presence of God. Therefore, Jesus had to come and die for us. So you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Therefore, Jesus had to come and die. What's the other side of that? The other side of that is I am so loved that Jesus wanted to come and die for me. You are so loved that Jesus wanted to come and die for you. And we live, Christians live in this tension. I call it sometimes a humble boldness. We are humble because we know we're sinners saved by grace. That keeps us humble. I think we should stay humble, and that can keep us humble. But then we're bold because we know that God loves us. And so we live in this tension. Sometimes we spend a lot of time over here, and then sometimes we spend a lot of time over here. But maturity happens, and I think joy happens when we put those together. A humble boldness. Okay, number two, Zechariah's song. I'm just going to mention one important takeaway here. Zechariah had a forward-looking faith that led to uh, an expanding of his own capacity of joy. This is something you probably haven't seen in the text, and I don't know if I learned this from somebody or I saw it along the way, but I would like for us to consider for a moment Zechariah being struck mute and maybe deaf. Think about that. And I would like to suggest that it was more of a gift than a punishment. Think about it. It was more of a gift than a punishment. God does things in our lives for his glory and our joy. So what God was doing in him was calling him aside a bit. During those nine months of his wife's pregnancy, He was forced to be quiet, to think deeply, to ponder God, to ponder the Scriptures, to communicate with his wife, to communicate with others. He he needed to listen deeply and learn how to communicate without words. And, And if he was deaf too, he needed to look into their eyes. He needed to re-engage with them, to pay close attention to his loved ones in order to communicate without being able to speak or maybe not being able to hear. And so this, this reminds, this forced quiet time reminds us that, that Zechariah emerged with this, a, a new perspective, a new attitude that led to his joy. And it, it teaches us about the importance of silence and reflection. And even the Christian meditation is a thing. It makes us nervous when we hear the word meditation, but Christian meditation is a thing that we need to learn more about. And this is where I struggle. I don't know about you, if, if you struggle here too, but this, when, when I wake up in the morning, I might have shared this before, but my mind just starts going in a thousand different directions. I, I wake up thinking about things that I need to do, uh, things that I forgot to do, 
uh, all kinds of th all things, as soon as the eyes open, maybe even before the eyes open, my mind starts going, are you like me a, a little bit, maybe? And so what is it like to get up and go and spend time with God? And to get up early enough so that we can spend a little bit of time with God in quiet reflection and considering, listening. Sometimes we do all the talking, right? And we need to listen. Prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. And so for me, and I told you, uh, did I tell you at the beginning? I had this little breakthrough this week, yeah. I knew I said it at the huddle, but I, I, I just, I took some time and I could feel the peace of God kind of beginning to flood. Maybe it got to here, and, and I hope it goes further in my soul and in my body, but to take that time to reflect, to be quiet. And so Zechariah's quiet time was a gift from God, not a punishment from God. And I want you to notice in his song, it contains a past tense perspective. In verse 68, he said, he has visited us. Verse 69, he has raised us up to protect it. And then in verse 74, he has granted us being delivered from the hand of our enemies. It's, it's all past tense. So he, he's saying this, prophesying this, praying this, singing this, and he's talking about it as if it already happened. He was so sure of what God was doing and what God was saying. The Zacharias' prophecy, he talks about his son, John the Baptist. And he, you can just see the joy in his life. And and uh, it reminded me that I got to spend last week Thanksgiving with my son. I have three daughters and a son, and we were with our son and his family. And I tell you, I just, coming on the plane out here, I just was weepy thinking about him. I, he's, he turned out so good. I don't know how it happened. I'm like, who are you? You know, the, he, he loves God. He loves his family. Uh, we got our issues in our family. I'm not trying to tell you that I got this perfect family. I'm not doing that. But I just was, I just was so impressed. Um, two kids, one on the way. And I, I just couldn't be more proud of him. And I, I'm reflecting on how Zechariah was talking about his son and the beauty and the wonder of what God was going to do in his life. So we're going to wrap this up. And as we close, I want to leave you with three simple but I think kind of profound ways to go deeper uh, and more fulfilling joy into our lives. The first one is focus on giving rather than getting. These are, you know these things, but just a kind of a reminder on the way out. Focus on giving rather than getting. And I thought of that definition of the, between lust and love. You know, love is giving, lust is getting. And so focus on giving rather than getting. The second one, Focus on healing rather than hurting. We all go through some deep hurts in our life, right? So sometimes we can get, kinda, we can get caught up in the hurt thing. And, and that, we move into victim mode when we do that. And so to focus on healing, God's healing. Uh, my mother was a hospice nurse. And uh, she used to say that um, sometimes people aren't cured, but they're always healed. So that's a little different perspective from a hospice world. And then the third one, uh, focus on God's power rather than on your problems. Again, sometimes we can get so caught up in the problems of life and we forget that God's power is available. Here's what I want you to remember, and I've said this in some circumstances, but maybe I've not said it here. Maybe I have. Um, God wants you to flourish 
more than you want to flourish. God wants this church to flourish more than we want it to flourish. So we can trust God and humbly remind God that he would build his church, that that he's making a way for you and for your, your family, for your giftings to make a difference, and to focus on God's power to do that rather than focusing in on our problems. So the big idea for today, if we have to go back and just sum up what I just said, happiness is dependent on favorable circumstances, happenstance, and it will come and go. But gospel joy or advent joy is a deep-seated and enduring affection that can grow even in the midst of difficult circumstances.